be reading this morning from Nehemiah 13, beginning in verse 1. On that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it came about that when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. And I'll pray. God, I thank you again for your word and, and this immense privilege that we have to gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus to worship you and to be instructed through your word and by your spirit and your ways that we might know you and worship you in spirit and truth. And I do pray that we would hear your voice and that our hearts would be responsive to you, God, for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> it wasn't long after I um, was made director at His Hill, um, and I began to realize that one of my responsibilities was going to be making sure that the place was maintained. And I remember a previous director from His Hill telling me that there is a philosophy of maintenance that is good to live by, and that is cut the head of the snake off. And so in other words, when it comes to maintenance, do the thing that is going to have the most lasting impact. And so especially when you're doing, dealing with an institutional setting, and so instead of having carpet, put in hardwood floors or put in tile, something that doesn't have to be replaced all the time. Cut the head of the snake off. Well, what happens, though, is whatever you put in, you can put concrete in, you wood floors, whatever, and sooner or later, if you live long enough, it's going to have to be fixed. It's a bummer. Wouldn't it be nice to live in a world where you could buy a washing machine at the beginning of your marriage and hand, hand it down to your grandkids after you die? <laughs> Never breaks. No maintenance whatsoever. You never have to replace the roof on your, of your house. You never have to buy a new car. It's just maintenance doesn't exist. Sorry, maintenance people, and you wouldn't, you'd be out of a job. What a wonderful world that would be. That'll be the new earth. <laughs> Until then, it's not going to happen. Spiritually, it's the same thing. We'd like to think that you can just learn your lesson spiritually and never have to learn it again. Wouldn't that be a great world to live in? Learn the lesson one time, never have to learn it again, once and done. Never have to get disciplined by God, one time, once and done. You know, I mean, it's like raising your kids. You just have to tell them one time, never have to tell them again. Doesn't work that way. And in Nehemiah 13, the last chapter of Nehemiah, he's gone back to um, the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, He's been in Israel for quite a while, time to go back and check in, and then he comes back to Israel, and when he comes back, he finds that things have not been maintained spiritually. He's going to um, discover four significant problems going on in Israel, and he has to address all four very, very strongly, very specifically. And what it comes down to is if, if you or I had been Nehemiah, I think our tendency would have been to have been greatly discouraged after making so much progress during the time that he was in Jerusalem, only to come back and see it's like he has to start all over again. 
The wall's still there, the temple's there, but the condition of the people is like nothing ever happened. They're right back to where they were before. It can be greatly, greatly discouraging, especially if we don't have a good theology of evil, a theology of evil. And there are things about evil that we just don't get. And I think because of that, we tend to get more discouraged than we should because we're not realistic about the world that we live in, how evil impacts our world, how it impacts everything, including our churches, but especially how it impacts us individually. And so there's a number of things that we're going to look at with these four problems, but, but I would just want to say at the outset of this message that, that clearly evil is never static. You can't just deal with it once and never have to worry about it again. It is not static. And in its movement, its progression, it always moves toward disintegration, complexity, and confusion. Because God is simple. And the truth of God is clear. It's simple. It's black and white. But with evil, everything just becomes blurred. You don't even know what evil is anymore because everything's just blurred. That's the nature of evil. It moves toward confusion and complexity and chaos. I was telling the staff, I remember a time when every television in the world turned on and off the same way. Don't you remember that time? There was just a switch. On, off, on, off. You could be in any country, and it went on and off the same way. Now, so many TVs have two remotes. And the power buttons are not clear. We have a remote that has two red buttons on it. And I, and I, and I remember, you go, I've, I've gone into hotels and I have no idea how to turn on the TV. I have to call the front desk to find out how to, call, how to turn on the TV. Patsy and I were in a hotel, I think it was in Spain last summer, and we couldn't turn the lights on. And I'm going... Why should this be difficult? I am just so frustrated. Turning lights on in a room ought to be an easy thing. And we're walking all over this room. It happened to be a fairly large room. And we cannot, for the life of us, figure out how to turn the lights on in this room. And I'm going, I could call the front desk, but my Spanish is not that good. <laughs> I don't know if they're going to understand. L lights, no worko. And if they did understand, and I'm sure I would not understand the response. And so we're frustrated, and I'm embarrassed, the dumb Americans, you know, and, and I finally, we get to looking around, and there's this box on the wall. And it looks, I've never seen a box like this box. And I, we figure out that if you put your door key, the credit card door key, in the box, voila, all the lights come on. Why does it have to be so complicated? See, that's sin. <laughs> that is the nature of sin, to make things complicated that don't need to be complicated. God makes things simple. There will be no lights like that on the new earth. The nature of sin is that it's not rational. It's not reasonable. And see, we think we ought to be able to reason with people that are caught up in evil with a society that's turning evil. We ought to, it's so irrational, we ought to be able just to reason to rationality. 
We don't understand evil. We do not have a good theology of evil. It cannot be reasoned with. It has to be crushed. That's what Nehemiah is going to do in this chapter. He doesn't come and start reasoning with people. He comes in and he just crushes it. There was a reason why it was prophesied all the way back in Genesis 3 that when the Savior comes, he will crush the head of Satan. Because that's another thing about evil. It's not going to change. It's not going to convert. It's not going to improve. It has to be crushed. We struggle sometimes with why there are peoples in the Bible that God says crush them, annihilate them, kill them. How can that be a good thing? How can that be right? It's one of the primary apologetics against the Christian faith is that there's genocide in the Bible. I'm not in the business of defending God, thankfully. But I know God is good and just and he is all wise. And I have to think that what we're seeing here is that God in his wisdom knows that evil can get so bad that the only just response is to crush it. And if I can't see that, then I don't understand evil. But God does. And he knows there comes a time when it cannot and will not be reasoned with. It will never convert. And the only just response is to crush it. The nature of evil is that it doesn't ever stop. It never quits. It never relents. We have to understand that we have to be on constant vigilance. There is a continual maintenance spiritually that has to be embraced. We're in a perpetual battle. There is no retirement in the battle against evil. I wish there were. The battle only gets stronger the older you get. It doesn't get easier. I wish that it did. I wish that I could tell young people it's going to get easier as you get older. The battle only intensifies. And every generation has to be taught these things. If we don't teach every generation the nature of evil, then we've already capitulated. And we're letting evil advance because we aren't setting the guard for the next generation. So what are these things that Nehemiah finds when he comes back to Jerusalem? <coughs> the introduction to the chapter here, these first three verses, is this um, reminder that, that the foreigner is to have no active role in the affairs of Israel, and in particular, the Ammonites and the Moabites, because they were the two people groups that had no compassion on Israel while they are in the wilderness, did nothing to assist them, actively opposed them. The Ammonites... Um, I'm sorry, the Moabites, they, they actually hired Balaam to curse them, and Balaam couldn't because God intervened and turned the, cursing, the curses literally into blessings. So what came out of Balaam, Balaam's mouth were blessings, and he just heard himself saying these blessings, and Balak, that was paying him, you know, huge amounts of money to curse him, goes, what's the matter with you? And he goes, I can't curse them. I'm trying to curse them. And so finally he says, well, I can't curse them, but I can give you some counsel. Send your women in among them, and your women will destroy them. And so that's what they did. And God never forgot. And he said, don't have anything to do 
with these Ammonites and Moabites. In that context, verse 4, now, prior to this, Elisha, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to, to Tobiah, oh my, doesn't this guy go away? Remember this guy? All the way back in chapter 2 of, 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 of Nehemiah, Tobiah is introduced. Tobiah is an Ammonite. He's one of the people that is to have no formal role in Israel. He's to be excluded. Well, Tobiah is a man of wealth and significance, and he has given one of his children in marriage to one of the priest's children. And so because of this linkage in marriage, they're giving him even greater access than what he would have had otherwise. And this guy is so well-liked and respected that Elisha has actually moved stuff out of the temple so that he can move Tobiah in. And he's made a residence for him. Now, not in the temple proper, but they had storerooms and, and, and offices and other things around the temple. And in one of those storerooms, in fact, several of those rooms, they moved everything out so they could move him in. What's the problem? Nehemiah comes in and goes crazy. We would have said, the man's lost his mind. He is so extreme. But see, you, can't, you cannot be extreme in a response to evil. You can't, that is, this is an area where you can't exaggerate. And so that's, I like to know that because I'm a Texan and I tend to embellish and exaggerate. But evil, see if you have a good understanding of a theology of evil, evil is so evil, there is no over-the-top response to evil. Anything you do is less than reasonable probably. You can't overreact to evil. And so Nehemiah comes in, and he goes bonkers. So it says in verse 6, But during all this time I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem, and I learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. Evil! Elisha didn't think that. Apparently nobody else thought that. He's a nice guy. But God's word said, no. This person, these kinds of people, can have nothing to do formally with Israel, and certainly not living in the temple compound. It is an evil because God's word says one thing, and you're doing something else, call it what it is, evil. And that's why the first three verses here, because God's word has plainly spoken to this. There you can't misunderstand it. Anybody could read the text and understand very clearly, for whatever reason, and God gives us the reason, doesn't always give us the reasons, but here he gives us the reasons why Ammonites and Moabites are not to be involved in Israel. But even if he hadn't given the reasons, that's okay because God doesn't owe us an explanation. He said no to the Ammonites and Moabites. And so to say yes to what God says no to is what? Evil. We, it's that simple. And you've got this clear-sighted man who comes in and he says, I don't care how reasonable it is. I don't care if there's other people that are living in the temple complex. This man cannot because God said no. 
And when we say yes to what God says no to, it is evil. Good for you, Nehemiah. So he doesn't form a committee and say, what do you think we should do? He takes matters into his own hands, and he starts chunking this guy's stuff out of the broom. Don't you love that word chunk? I love that word chunk. And so he says, look it up. It's somewhere in some, some dictionary, dictionary of Texas phrases, probably. And so he says, verse 8, and it was very displeasing to me, understatement of the year, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Wow. This guy, grown man, opens up the doors. This is Tobiah's stuff. I don't know where Tobiah was. Maybe he was, I don't know where he was. He wasn't there at, the point, at that point, and he just starts just throwing his stuff out. Then I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms, fumigated the rooms. And I returned there, what's supposed to be there, the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. Kicked him out, threw his stuff out, didn't care if it hurt his feelings, didn't care if it offended other people. It's an evil, and there's only one way to deal with evil, clearly, drastically, without compromise. We need a good theology of evil. Well, that's the first problem. Second problem, verse 10. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field, because they weren't being paid. How can they serve the temple and not have money to buy food? And so they quit the temple because nobody was supporting them, and they went back to their, own <coughs> to their own fields. So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored to their, to them to their post, and Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. So why this problem? Because they stopped paying their tithes. There's no way for the Levite, the priesthood, to function apart from donations. And the donations were tithes. And the tithes were a set amount. And they weren't being paid. This is a tithing issue. And so he gets everything back to where it's supposed to be. And he says in verse 14, the first of four times in this chapter, Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds, which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. Well, aren't you glad we are not under the tithe command? New Testament doesn't tell us we have to tithe. And it's interesting, of the four problems, this is the only one that's not specifically mentioned as an evil. It's a problem, needs to be fixed, but it doesn't call it an evil. But don't go too fast down that road. The contemporary prophet at this time is Malachi. And Malachi has a list of evils that Israel was guilty of. And one of them was not tithing. And in Malachi, God calls it robbing God. And I don't know how you can rob God and not call it evil. It's an evil. Now, the first problem with Tobiah seems to be a problem that Maybe we can, I don't want to be too, too strict on, on these categories or these, this application, but I think it's fair, it's reasonable. The first problem 
with Tobiah was a problem of theological compromise because God's word had said, don't allow the Ammonites or Moabites to have this kind of access, this kind of influence. So they compromised on what God's word said. So theological compromise. But now we're dealing with money. And this is an area, again, that is very important. Scripture has a lot to say about money. One person, one time, I think it was maybe, um, um, well, I don't mean, I'll probably quote the wrong guy, but the point that he made was there's more written in the New Testament about money than there is about heaven or hell. So it's a big topic in Scripture. We know, as evangelical Christians who know our Bibles, that we are not under a 10% tithe. But the way we're supposed to live is that it all is the Lord's. 100%, not 10%, 100%. And there will be times when God impresses upon our hearts to give 10%. There will be other times He impresses upon our hearts to give 100%. Really? I'm not exaggerating. We had a Christmas one year where my parents had no money for Christmas presents. Not a good place to be. And they had prepared us and said, there won't be presents this year. But that's okay. We have the Lord. And so it frightened us. I remember being a bit frightened and a bit concerned, disconcerting as a kid. But I... I knew that we were in a safe place, that God had given us himself, God had given us our family, and we would make it without Christmas presents. But still, very hard, especially for the parents, not to be able to buy presents for their kids. The week of Christmas, a man came to our door. I answered the door. I recognized him from being at church, older gentleman, and he said, I need to talk to your dad. And so... He, my dad came to the door and would, invited him in. He says, no, would you just step out on the front porch? And so my dad stepped out on the porch. A little bit later, he came in the house. And um, I, it was only later I found out what had happened. God impressed upon that man, not knowing our need, to turn over to my dad his entire paycheck for that month. 100%. Here's my paycheck. Bless your children. Sometimes God says 100%. He certainly says that with our lives. He wants it all. It's all His. So I can say it's all His. But is it? How much money truly goes to other people? How much am I investing in eternal things? people, God's word, God's work? Or am I just giving lip service that it's the Lord's? We're not under the old covenant, but I believe we can still rob God today. We can rob God. And it's an evil. Verse 15 has to do with the Sabbath. Third problem. In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. 
Also the men of Tyre were living there <coughs> who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold um, them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. And I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and this city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath of Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And it came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of, uh, of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and they should not be opened in them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my so servants at the gates so that no load should enter the, on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the traders and the merchants of every kind of merchandise um, spent the night <coughs> outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Yeah. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers and sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also remember me, O oh my God. So the first problem seems to be compromising theologically. The second problem is, uh, is compromising financially. And here, there's the problem of the Sabbath and compromising on, on spiritually on the significance of what the Sabbath is. Once again, Nehemiah is himself uncompromising. He is strict. He is immediate. He is clear. He is drastic. Shut the doors. Arm guards to keep anybody from coming in. Strict warning. You have to do that with evil. We had a student one year at His Hill who normally I would not have accepted under the circumstances she came, but I knew her family well. And she was involved in a very immoral relationship. And her dad had told her, either go to His Hill or I'm kicking you out on the street. We would not normally accept students under those circumstances. But like I said, I knew the family well, and I felt very strongly that this is what God wanted me to do. And so I accepted her. 18-year-old girl involved with a married man who was flying in and secretly meeting with her. And so then the guy wants to come to Texas. And so I wrote him an email. I said, you show up on this property, and I'll have you arrested. Don't test me on this. And he tried to email back and reason with me. Never responded to him. You don't try to negotiate with evil. There is nothing to be reasonable about, because evil itself is unreasonable. Clear, definite boundary. You come here, I will have you arrested. No need to say it twice. Don't test me on it. That's what Nehemiah is doing. We need more of that kind of thing. Once again, we are not under the Old Covenant. New Covenant doesn't tell us that we have to keep the Sabbath. And the Sabbath in the Old Testament is not Sunday. It is Saturday. As soon as the resurrection had taken place and the Spirit of God had been poured out on the new believers, they immediately began taking their day of rest on Sunday, the first day of the week, not the seventh day of the week, because we are commemorating Christ who rose from the dead on the first day of the week. 
But there is nothing in the New Testament that tells us that every Christian has to take a day of rest on Sunday. Paul spoke to this very specifically and said, let each person be fully convinced in his own mind what he does on this issue. He says, for some Christians, one day will be more important than the others. That is fine. Speaking of the Sabbath, or what, not what, the Sabbath, the day of rest, Sunday. That will be the most important day of the week for most Christians. He said, for other Christians, every day is the same. Well, how can you justify that, those Christians? Because those Christians would understand that Christ is our rest. He is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Jesus is our rest. But let's be careful here. Because just as we would say that we are not under the old covenant when it comes to the tithe, but God owns it all, then we better make sure that we're letting God have full discretion over the use of our money, because it's His money, and not rob God. In the same way, we are not under the Old Covenant when it comes to the Sabbath. And if we're going to say Jesus is our rest and every day is significant, then don't make every day secular. If you're saying every day is spiritual, then every day should be spiritual. That doesn't mean you stop working. That doesn't mean you come to church every day of the week. But don't say it's all the Lord's when it comes to money, when in fact it's all yours. And don't say every day is the Lord's day, which it should be, when in fact every day is my day. We have this drift, and it's evil, where we, move, where we start so well spiritually and we're right, it's all the Lord's. It's His day, every day, every moment is the Lord's. Amen. I preach it all the time. But if anybody were to look at my life, if God examines my life, more importantly, is he going to see a heart that's responsive to him in every moment or a heart that's making its own choices in every moment? And God is not practically being honored any moment, much less any day, hour, or any other time of the week. Spiritual compromise. Patsy told me just on the way to church today, she had no idea that this was coming up in this passage. She said, was telling me how it's disturbing that she looks on Instagram and Facebook and she sees so many Christians referring to Sunday as fun day. Really? We've come to that. Sunday is fun day? In Israel's day, Nehemiah would have said, that is evil. In our day, we don't even raise an eyebrow. That our rest time is totally about us and has really nothing to do with worshiping God. This is evil. The fourth, the fourth problem is actually the biggest problem because Nehemiah calls it a great evil. Verse 23. In those days I also saw that the Jews had, your Bible and mine says, married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Ashdod is in the area of the former area of the Philistines. 
And Ashdod in particular was where the Philistine god Dagon was set up. It's the place where the Ark of the Covenant was taken to when it was, take, when it was captured under King Saul's reign. They took the Ark to Ashdod, to the temple of Dagon. And you remember, when they went in the next morning, Dagon was bowing down to the Ark. This is Ashdod. Ammon and Moab are the two countries, nation-states, that did not help Israel when they were in the wilderness. They are also people who worship the gods Chemosh and Moloch. And Chemosh and Moloch were worshipped through human sacrifice. These were two of the gods that Solomon allowed his wives to worship. And through their influence, all of Israel is ultimately destroyed. Because Solomon let each of his thousand wives have pagan worship centers to the gods that they worshipped. There's no record that Solomon himself offered human sacrifices, but it says that Solomon's heart was turned away because of these wives and their idolatrous practices. And ultimately, all of Israel was turned away. And now, once again, Israel is giving her daughters in marriage to the people of these countries. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod. None of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his, of his own people. So what did he do? He once again goes crazy. I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair what pastor is going to keep his job if he does that? If I did that at his hill, I would have a lawsuit on my hand. Parents would be calling up, taking their kids. What is going on? That's the definition of a cult, they would say. Nehemiah would say this is the definition of how you respond to evil. Great evil. I'm not saying that this is how I'm going to do things. <laughs> you come to me and tell me of some great evil in your life, I'm not telling you I'm going to hit you or pull your hair out. It's not going to happen. I may think it. What we're seeing here is an appropriate response to great evil. We don't have a good understanding of evil. Evil is evil. You can't be too extreme in dealing with it. That's what's being portrayed here. We don't get it. It's really evil. There's no way to deal any, in, a, in, in, a, in, a, in a modifying, coddling type of way with evil. Mollifying, I meant to say. So then he points back to Solomon. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. If this guy is not immune from the problems that come with these kinds of associations, what makes you think you will be? How did this happen? 
In the case of Solomon, I wonder if he thought, because he knew he was the wisest man on the planet. He knew that. God had said, I will give you greater wisdom than any person alive during your days. He was the wisest man on the planet. So I wonder if Solomon began to think, I am too smart to be deceived. And his strength was his downfall. And he was deceived. Nobody is too smart to be deceived. And the very nature of evil, it is insidious, and it, 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 it twists, and it, it is, and it will turn the most clear-headed person away from what is good to what is evil. Nobody is immune from the influence of evil. Nobody. No matter how much life experience you have, you can fall. No matter how well you may know what the dangers are, you can fall. Solomon did. Verse 27, do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Now, you recall, if you've been sitting here since we started this study, when we first started looking at Ezra, in chapter 10 of Ezra, Ezra found the same situation and he made these men <coughs> make a covenant to put away all these foreign women. And I looked at that in some depth, and the conclusion that I came to, and not lightly, is that they were not actually married. And these were not literal, legitimate marriages, nor were these divorces. The reason I came to that conclusion is two things. One, the word that is being used here is not marriage. You may have in the margin of your Bible, I have it in mind, just as in Ezra 10, it is also true here in Ezra 13, in verse 23 and in verse 27, the word literally means to give dwelling to. So it seems that they never did marry these women, and they were just simply living with them as mistresses or concubines. Solomon had done that. They're doing the same thing. And so maybe that's part of the deception is thinking, well, I'm not marrying them. What kind of influence can they have? It's just a sideline thing that's going on. There's no sideline thing when it comes to sin. Sin permeates. It is like leaven that infiltrates every single aspect of our life. You can't keep sin on the sideline. So these were women that they were giving dwelling to. The second reason why I don't think that these were actual marriages is because in the Ezra passage, the, the remedy to the situation is to make a covenant to undo these relationships. Well, marriage is a covenant, and Scripture is very clear that you cannot add conditions to a covenant. You can't add to it. You can't take away. Covenants by nature cannot be changed. And so you can't make a covenant to undo a covenant. So therefore, I assume that they were not in a covenant marriage relationship. They were in illegitimate relationships by their very nature were sin, and therefore Ezra and Nehemiah can both say, stop them. There's no place for this. End it right now. And they did. And for the third time, 
Ezra says, remember them, oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood. Here he's saying, remember them. But then he comes back in verse 31, after taking care, he says, I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each to his task. And I arranged for the supply of the wood, this is for the, for the sacrifices at the appointed times, and for the first fruits. And the final time, remember me, oh my God, for good. Compromise theologically, compromise financially, compromise spiritually, and compromise morally where they're involved in immoral relationships. These are evils. Nehemiah was aware of the problem. We need to be aware. But again, the nature of sin is to blind. We need to see evil as evil. We need to deal with it strongly, uncompromisingly. It needs to be crushed. There may be areas in, in our lives where we know that we continually, continually, continually have issues in this area. And we've never dealt strongly with it. Understand the nature of evil. It will not be controlled. You can't control evil. It must be crushed. And if there are areas in our life where God is saying, this is evil. Understand, you will never get it under control. You can only come to Jesus and have it crushed. There may be specific things that we have to do to just say it's gone. I, maybe other people can handle this. I cannot. It has its roots in me. It has control over me. It has to stop. The New Testament, over and over again, exhorts us to be gentle, to be understanding, to be compassionate, to be aware of our own frailties when dealing with the frailties of other people. Amen. Amen to all that. But we are also exhorted to be strong and uncompromising, to stand up and act like men, to put on the armor of God and to stand firm against the, the tactics and schemes of the devil. Both sides of that coin are true. Gentle, understanding, compassionate, but also uncompromising. We must allow for no excuses when it comes to sin. We can understand. We can empathize. How many times we've had people that we've cared for sit with and we cry with them because they, are being, they have been defeated by sin. Amen. And we should do those things but we don't coddle them. We don't make excuses. I don't need somebody to coddle me and make excuses for me when there is sin in my life. I need somebody to kick me in the rear. And maybe that's just a man talking to men. But that's the truth of it. I've told you the story of a good friend of mine who walked away from his family and children, committed adultery, ended up marrying the young woman he committed adultery with. And I asked him, what happened? How did this happen? I asked him directly, how did this happen to you? And he says, all I can tell you is that I got so tired and worn out and stressed out that in a moment of weakness, I gave in. 
I accepted that because I was young and dumb. And I gave that explanation to another man who asked me what had happened. And he asked me how I was doing. And I said, man, it's really hard. But I talked to him. And he told me, you know, this is what he told me. He was just worn out, stressed out, and just gave in. And this man said, you know, I don't know the details, but I know that's a lie. And he went on to explain. He goes, nobody just takes a running jump off a cliff. And this look, because this, this to you looks like it just came out of nowhere. And I said, yeah, it looks like it just came out of nowhere. And I said, I guarantee you, I do not know the details. I guarantee you it did not come out of nowhere. For that man, your friend, it was one more small step. It always is. That's the nature of evil. People don't just wake up one morning and decide they're going to throw their lives down the toilet. It's one more small step. And as I got to know the situation better, I now think that that is absolutely true in the case of my friend. One more small step. And then one day you look and say, how did he do that? How did he throw every good thing he had away? It was one more small step. You can't make excuses for any of us. Don't make excuses for me. And don't come to me ask, expecting me to accept your excuses when it comes to sin. There is no excuse. We should get angry about what angers God, but first in our own lives. First in my life. How is Nehemiah so different? I mean, the guy lives with the Persians, for Pete's sake, in a pagan palace. He's not seeing righteousness on display. And so he comes back to Israel, and he's the clear-sighted one, the guy who goes from a godless environment to Israel, and he's the one that has the eyes to see 2020 when it comes to these things. What's with this Nehemiah? Well, like Daniel and so many others in the Scripture, there was a personal purity and integrity. It wasn't about his environment. It was about his relationship with God. That's what gave him the 2020. Now, that's not saying environment isn't important. It's very important. But this man could be so clear-headed, so clear-sighted, so uncompromising on evil because of his own relationship with God. We must be men and women of purity and integrity. I am never going to get disturbed by sin as it disturbs God unless I'm right with God walking with God. We won't see it. We won't call it evil. We won't care. We won't deal with it unless we are people of the light. That's the truth. I'm not going to see the problem. I'm not going to call it what it is when I do see it. I'm not going to care about it as I should, and I'm not certainly going to deal with it unless I am walking in the light. We must remember the enemy is unrelenting. Spiritual decay and compromise is always a problem. And the battle is never going to go away. It's like the undertow in the ocean. It's always there. Always there. We've all been to the beach. One of the reasons that it's good to have a car parked on the beach is so you can remember where you're supposed to be. Because you spend any time out in the surf, 
and you drift. It's impossible not to, unless you're anchored. And on some days, the undertow is so dangerous, they say, don't even get in the water. Feels like that's what's happening now. <laughs> the undertow has increased. And we wish we could just get out of the water. But we can't get out of the water. We are in this world. And the undertow is dangerous. It's okay to pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I believe God would have us to pray that. But until that time, we have to understand we are in an undertow. The evil is all around us, and the evil is in us. And we need a fixed reference point, that car parked on the beach, which is Jesus. So we know where we are, and we know when we're drifting, and we come back to Jesus. And when we live before him in the light, and at times taking a very unpopular, offensive position, perhaps even with our own family, God will remember you. Everybody else may hate you. Now, why was he saying that over and over again? God, remember me. I think it's probably because he's making a lot of enemies. When's he going to go back to Persia? <laughs> I'm tired of this Nehemiah reigning on our party. God will remember us when all is done from him and through him and to him. Begins with us. Begins here with each one of us. Walk in the light. Let God deal with your heart. I must let God deal with my heart and be obedient to him. When God's calling something evil, responding to it in faith. Before I ever curse the darkness in, in the world or try to deal with anybody else. God would have us to be firm and resolute, but to be tender-hearted toward him. I'll close this in prayer. God, I do thank you for this man, Nehemiah. And it is clear to me that he could not ever have been the man that he was apart from a living relationship with you. He wasn't acting on personal conviction. He wasn't just trying to do what he thought was right. It's a man that is inspired, moved, motivated by your very life. I pray that the same would be true for each of us, God, that we don't just try to make programs and have our agendas for how we can accomplish change, but that we be people that are empowered by the very Spirit of God, the Spirit of holiness. And that by the power of your life within us, that others are drawn to Jesus and others might be turned away, but that your good work would be done. I pray that we would think rightly when it comes to good and evil and that we would not underestimate the evil of evil and that we would know, God, that we have no strength for this battle other than Jesus the one who has overcome. We thank you, God, for the faith that we have in him, which may, has made us overcomers, and that we can live lives of confidence, humility, meekness, but confidence and hope because of Christ and his finished work. In Jesus' name.